amen, I don't know how everybody's doing this morning. I trust some of you may feel like all is well with your soul, and I trust others of you might feel the opposite in terms of your human experience, and that's where that song that we just sang comes in and gives hope, because if you have Christ, if you know Jesus, then you do really have all that you need. You have been pardoned by God the Father because of the work of God the Son. You have been counted righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You will get God forever because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus we can say, no matter what my circumstance, it is well with my soul, all because of Christ. And so now as we look to the Bible, let's go to God and ask Him to be with us and empower us during this time. I certainly need His help. You need His help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask that you would be merciful and gracious to us. You are so good and you're so faithful. Every time we open your word, we ask you for your help and you are always faithful to give it. We do not trust in or rest in our own strength or sufficiency. We don't hope in the giftedness of a preacher. We trust and we rest in you, in your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. And so God, we pray that you would come now. Illuminate your word that we might understand it. Drive it deep into our hearts so that we might be changed. We pray that you would continue to give us faith in the Lord Jesus. Continue to change us and make us more like him. And we know that one of the ways that you do that is through your word. Do that now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, friends, I have been repeatedly glad in God's providence that we are making our way through this letter. And by this letter, I mean Galatians. I've been glad repeatedly that we are making our way through this letter at this particular season of our church's life. This church is not very old still. We are in the early years of this work called Covenant Baptist Church. And there is, I, I feel, no better book that we could be going through right now than this one. Because it is a defense of the gospel. We have been able for weeks and weeks and weeks to think about nothing other than the righteousness of God that is counted to us simply by faith in Jesus Christ. We've been able to think together about these wonderful gospel truths, and I rejoice in that reality. The decision to preach Galatians was made months and months by the pastors before this sermon series ever got started. We started it around the new year, I think. But we decided probably in the summer of last year that Galatians would be the Pauline epistle that I would preach. And I trust God on it. There are things that I, I can speak for myself and I trust for Ron also as the pastors here. There are things that I and we desperately want for us as a church. And these are just a few of them. We want for us as a church to trust in and rest in and hope in nothing other than Jesus. His person, His work, and the promises of God that are realized in Him. We want to live every moment with that awareness 
with awareness that we are just ordinary people, sinful people, covered in the righteousness of Christ, whose identity is now in Christ. I want, we want for us to give all glory and all credit to God for our salvation. We want for us to obey God's word and do good works motivated by love and joy and gratitude and empowered by the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus Christ. I want and we want the notion that we could ever contribute anything to our salvation or the thought that we could ever earn anything before God. We want those thoughts to be absolutely destroyed. We want self-righteousness to be, to be obliterated, for it not to exist in this church. We want us to live humbly and charitably and graciously and honestly with each other. We want to live in an environment of compassionate accountability and genuine brotherly and sisterly affection. And I want and we want every member of CBC to be able to answer the question, how does the gospel apply to the believer? And when we answer that question, I want it, we want it to be the gospel. It's my life. The gospel, Jesus more in particular, Jesus is my life. Like we just sung. I live in light of it, I, the gospel. I live in light of him, Jesus, who he is and what he's done every single moment I'm breathing. And Galatians instills those things. And I thank God for that. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking today at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21 through the first verse of Galatians chapter 5. I was going to say it now, that chapter division is poorly placed, and we realize that those are not inspired by God. They were put there by people. They're often useful, but we will be making our way from Galatians 4.21 through 5.1 today. And so before we do anything else, I want to read the Word of God for us. I trust we're going to have the verses up on the screen. Whether you're looking to the screen or to your own Bible, it will help you to have the text in front of you. Listen now to the Word of God. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. So what I want to do today, friends, is take this section of Paul's argument from 421 through 5.1. And I want to look at that argument in four pieces, four parts. I really don't care if we call them points or headings, parts, doesn't matter. I will number them one through four. And we're going to be looking at Paul's argument together. So part one, point one of Paul's argument, we're just going to call the introduction to it. The introduction to his argument in this section of his letter. We're going to look together now at verses 21 through 23. Heading number one, the introduction. You see there in verse 21, Paul asks a question. To those who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? What he's asking is, have you not read the book of Moses? Have you not read the scripture? Those of you who say that you want to be under the law in terms of the law God gave, have you not read the law, the word of God? Verse 22, for because it is written that Abraham had two sons. It's written in the scripture. It's written in the law, the book of Moses, that Abraham had two sons. One of those sons he had by a slave woman. Her name was Hagar. That son's name was Ishmael. And another son, Isaac, he had by Sarah, the free woman. Paul reminds us that the son, Ishmael, of the slave, Hagar, was born according to the flesh. You see that in verse 23. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son, Isaac, of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. What's he referring to? If you remember back in the book of Genesis how all of this went down, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, took matters into their own hands, so to speak. Because God, you remember, had promised the two of them a son. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son in spite of the fact that they were very advanced in age. It wasn't happening, at least on their own timetable. There certainly was some doubt, some questions of faith. Can we believe God here going on? And they decided together, Abraham and Sarah, to accomplish the promise of God on their own. We are going to deliver on the promise that God made to give us an heir. We're going to do this ourselves because God hasn't done this, at least yet. So they decided that Abraham would have relations with Sarah's servant girl, Hagar, and they would have a child that way. So when Paul says that it was by the flesh, according to the flesh, he is contrasting the flesh and the promise, the law and the promise like he's been doing throughout the letter, but quite simply, he's painting a picture of human effort. Ishmael was born according to the flesh, human doing. Conversely, the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. You remember how this went down. Twenty some odd years after God had made the promise to Abraham and Sarah, he delivered on his promise that Abraham would have a son through Sarah. In spite of their advanced age, God granted conception and Isaac was born. He was born of the promise of God, not through human means, not according to the flesh. So Paul's point is pretty clear. Those who are relying on keeping the law and on human effort are not the children of the covenant. They're not the children of promise. Those who are 
depending upon keeping the law, those who are depending upon human effort, the means of the flesh, are children according to the flesh, not children of promise. That's how he's introducing this argument. Now let's consider what he does next. In verses 24 through 27 now, secondly, point two, heading two, he gives us the illustration. He gave us the introduction, now the illustration of his argument, the point that he's making. Verse 24, he tells us that what he has been saying about Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac may be interpreted allegorically. Now let's just define allegory real quick. We don't want to make any assumptions here. Allegory, you remember, maybe from English class back in, I don't know, what grade that would be, is a particular kind of symbolism. Allegory is a kind of symbolism where people or things or events represent something else entirely. They represent a different reality than what's actually being described or depicted on the page. Just very quickly before we even dive into this allegory that Paul gives us, I want to make a couple of comments about allegory and interpreting the Bible. I would be remiss if I didn't say something about this. Scripture has often been abused through the history of the church by being interpreted allegorically. When people have been very quick to allegorize the Scripture, bad things have happened in the history of the church. This was very prevalent even in the first few hundred years of the church's existence. You go back and read many of the church fathers, not all of them, but some of them. They do a lot of this kind of thing, and it's harmful. Allegorizing things that should not be allegorized. So here are just a few thoughts for you, three of them, with respect to allegory in Scripture. The allegory that Paul gives us is given through, obviously, his writing. And remember that he is inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing this letter. So we are on solid ground given that we are listening to a Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Scripture. It is safe for us to say, okay, we can see allegory in this situation with Hagar and Ishmael and with Sarah and with Isaac because Paul is telling us we can. This does not mean that we just run off and allegorize everything else in the Bible. All right, so that's the first thing. We're on safe ground here because Paul has written it. Second thing to consider with respect to allegory in Scripture. Bad allegory is arbitrary. Bad allegory is arbitrary and takes us further away from the primary meaning of the passage. It makes the primary meaning of the biblical text more confused, more confusing even. It muddles the truth of Scripture. The main emphasis of a passage is at best confused, if not lost altogether, by bad allegory. So rather than providing clarity, it actually reduces clarity with respect to the biblical witness. Third point for your consideration just with respect to allegory. Good allegory, which I would say this is good allegory that Paul is doing here. When allegory is good, it is perfectly in step with the primary thrust of Scripture. When allegory is good, it is perfectly in step with the redemptive historical framework of Scripture. And we will see, even in this text, that that's true of this allegory. It reinforces the main message of the Bible if allegory is done well. It reinforces the redemptive historical framework of the Bible if allegory is done well. So now kind of back to the text. That was just a brief kind of pastoral word for you. Paul tells us that we can interpret allegorically what was going on back in the book of Genesis. 
These events that are recorded in the history of Scripture. He tells us that these two women, Hagar and Sarah, represent two covenants. One, Hagar, is from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, you will remember, is where the Mosaic covenant was given. The law. The two tables of the law were given at Mount Sinai. And we are told that Hagar is representative of that. Hagar is representative of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. She bears children for slavery, Paul tells us in verse 24. Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem in that she is in slavery with her children. If you've been here through this series, this language will not surprise you at all. Because Paul has talked at numerous points in this redemptive historical way that underneath the law of Moses, the people of God were enslaved, as it were. They were enslaved to the power of sin. They were enslaved on the one hand to spiritual forces of darkness, elemental forces of the world. They were bound. Their trespass was increased under the law of Moses. And so in thinking in this redemptive historical way, look back to the Old Testament. Think about how the life of the nation of Israel was marked by slavery to sin. And then think also of the kind of doctrine when Paul is talking about the present Jerusalem and how she's in bondage. Think about the kind of doctrine that was prevalent in Paul's day. In the Jerusalem of Paul's day, there was this very oppressive, codified way of living that put burdens on people. Jesus says, you put burdens on people, he says this to the teachers of the law, that you yourselves cannot bear. But yet you're heaping this yoke upon people. Slavery is how Paul describes that doctrine. But the other woman, Paul tells us, is different. You see there in verse 26, he makes a transition. The Jerusalem above, he's beginning to talk about Sarah. He's beginning to talk about what she represents. The other woman represents a different covenant. He says there are two covenants represented. He only names one of them, though. He says that Hagar is representing the Mosaic covenant made at Sinai. Well, who does Sarah represent? What covenant does she represent? I think we can see essentially two covenants that mean for us the same thing. I'm going to try to explain what I mean. I think clearly in view would be the covenant that God made with Abraham. Sarah is representative of that Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give to you not only an heir, but I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you a land forever. So she certainly is representative of that covenant that was made to her own husband. And then certainly we would see that she is representative of the new covenant as well. That finds its, or excuse me, the Abrahamic covenant finds its fulfillment in that new covenant. I hope that I didn't utterly confuse you. I'll just say that one more time to try to be clear. We should see Sarah as representing both the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Because that Abrahamic covenant is so clearly fulfilled in the new. We understand, of course, that he is talking about the mother of Isaac, none other than Sarah. And we see that she bears children for freedom. She bears free children rather than slaves. And then in verse 27, Paul is going to cite the prophet Isaiah. We read this earlier in our service, but I'm going to look at it one more time with us and just look at what the prophet said there that Paul is referencing. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than of the one who has a husband. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, 
calls the barren one, which is the nation of Israel at that time, in exile, the barren one, to rejoice. He calls Israel, though it is in exile, though she is in exile, to rejoice because there will be an abundance of children for her. There will be an abundance of children of promise that God will make for her. That Isaiah 54 is found in the context of covenant language and language of what should be described as eschatological fulfillment, meaning end of time fulfillment. This is what God will do ultimately. It's pointing to what God is going to accomplish by the end of history when the new heavens and the new earth are consummated. There will be an abundance of children of promise, though at the time that the prophet was writing, Israel is like a barren woman, exiled, removed from its own land. Things are not going well. God is promising through the prophet to enlarge the number of the spiritual children of Abraham. And so certainly the language of the barren one there in Isaiah 54 would have Sarah in view. That promise that was made to a barren woman, I'm going to give you offspring, and through that offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, namely, through that promised offspring, the nations will come to Christ. Through that offspring, the nations will be saved. So certainly Sarah is in view in the mind of the prophet Isaiah. And in addition, that text that Paul cites from Isaiah points to the fact that God's children are not conceived through human means. Things are going horribly for the nation of Israel. And yet God says, don't worry. I will do it. I will do this. I will increase your offspring to the point where the barren woman, the nation in exile, will have an abundance of children. And so Paul, inciting the prophet, is reinforcing this truth. That the children of promise are not made by human means. The children of promise are not made according to the flesh. But they are made of God. And they are made through promise. Which brings us now to the third point of Paul's argument. If we've considered first the introduction. Second, the illustration. Further unpacking what he means. We're now going to look at the connection. The connection to the Gentile, to the Gentile believers in Galatia. Verses 28-30. through 30, Let's put our eyes there. The connection that Paul makes. You see in verse 28, he immediately applies this to the Galatian believers. Now you brothers, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. This is very clear. The Galatian Christians are like Isaac in that they have not been born according to the flesh, children of God. They've been born through promise. They aren't children of Hagar from Mount Sinai, born into slavery. On the other hand, they are children of Sarah. From the Jerusalem above, born into freedom. You are like Isaac, a child of promise. And then in verse 29, Paul is going to help the Galatian Christians understand what's going on in their own churches. They're being oppressed and persecuted by false teachers. Keep that in mind, right? So he's going to help them understand that, what they're going through. Verse 29, just as at that time, He's talking about when Ishmael and Isaac were alive, just like when Ishmael persecuted Isaac. He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So also it is now. 
The children of the flesh are persecuting the children of promise. In your day, Galatian Christians, just like it happened back in the day when Isaac and Ishmael were alive. An important note here is that in verse 29, you see how Paul uses the language about the children of promise born according to the Spirit. It's just cool to kind of see these things as we make our way through the letter. Born according to the Spirit is synonymous with what he says in verse 23, born through promise. So just remember, whenever you see born according to the Spirit, born according to promise, through or of God, we're talking about the same reality. We're talking about that new birth reality. So the same thing that was happening when Ishmael persecuted Isaac is happening in the Galatian churches with these false teachers persecuting and oppressing the Galatian Christians. Remember, these false teachers are pressing the necessity of keeping the law. They're pressing the necessity of circumcision and the observance of days and feasts and various things in order to be declared righteous before God. They are trying to force the Galatians to conform to the written code. They are telling Galatian believers even that they're not even legitimate children of God. You guys are not legitimately children of God unless you're being circumcised, unless you're keeping the law and observing these days and these feasts and things. If you're not doing that, you are not right with God. Faith in Christ, great as that is, is not enough. That's what they're saying. And so Paul understands that to be persecution. And that's instructive for us. This is no small thing because I think sometimes we are prone to think that this kind of persecution is not a big deal. Right? Oh, there are false teachers saying things to you, trying to undermine your faith and your even standing before God. Oh, it's going to happen. That's not a big deal. It's a big deal to Paul. One of my favorite guys, dead guys, to read, uh, is a guy, a guy named John Calvin. He said this. This is very, very good with respect to this kind of persecution. It's very pastoral. Because this kind of attack on our faith and our standing before God, there really is nothing more serious than that, right? It's the most important thing in the world. Calvin says, We ought to be filled with horror when the enemies of true religion attempt by their blasphemies to make void our confidence, which rests on the promises of God, when they ridicule our salvation, when they wantonly laugh to scorn the whole gospel. Nothing ought to wound our minds so deeply as contempt of God and reproaches cast upon His grace. Nor is there any kind of persecution more deadly than when the salvation of the soul is assailed. Close quote. It's true. So this kind of persecution that the Galatian believers were undergoing is a big deal. They're being told by Judaizing believers that their faith is illegitimate, that their standing before God is not secure, and they're being pressed to add something to faith in Christ in order to be right with God. That is no small matter at all. In verse 30, you see that the Apostle Paul continues. He's going to comfort the Galatian believers now. But what does the Scripture say? So don't worry so much about what these false teachers are saying. What does the Scripture say? He quotes Genesis 21, verse 10. Cast out the slave woman and her son, 
For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So the false teachers and others with them who are, we would understand, children of the flesh, like Ishmael, are to be cast out. Now, what we should understand by that is, don't worry about what they're saying because they will not inherit the promise. They will not inherit the blessing of Abraham. You will, though. You are the ones who will inherit the promise by faith in Christ. Don't worry about what they say because they are wrong. They are children according to the flesh and will not inherit the promise with you. Take comfort in what the Scripture says. And so now, friends, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, obviously, in, in this sermon, the rest of the time we have together, is the fourth point, the fourth piece of Paul's argument, which I'm just going to call the conclusion. So we've considered first the introduction, next the illustration, third the connection to the Galatian believers, and now fourthly the conclusion of this section of Paul's argument. He has just comforted the Galatian believers. Don't worry about what those false teachers are saying. They are not heirs like you. Verse 31 of chapter 4 and chapter 5, verse 1. Strong words here. Very clear words from the Apostle Paul. Put your eyes on verse 31 first. And so, brothers, so brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We are not children of Hagar, so to speak. We are children of Sarah. We are children of the promise, and we are free. It is no small matter that Paul would include himself, by the way, alongside a bunch of Gentile Christians. He's a Jew, and he's going to lump himself right in there with them. We, using that first-person plural language, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And so, if the Galatians, along with the Apostle Paul, are children of the free woman, then they are free from slavery under the law. If we are children of the free woman, born through promise, born according to the Spirit, who hail from the Jerusalem above, then we are free. It's quite clear what he's saying in that verse. And now turn your eyes now to verse 1 of chapter 5, where Paul tells us straightforwardly, for freedom Christ has set us free. And so... Therefore, stand firm. Because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is and His work, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery being under the Mosaic Law. Stand firm, brothers. Resist the false teaching of this meritorious law-keeping. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Resist the false teaching of any work of the law being necessary for your justification. Resist it. Stand firm because of Jesus and what He's done. We're going to consider it more length. Next week we're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3 of Galatians 5. We're going to consider it more length. What it is that Jesus has done. We've been thinking about that a lot lately. But we're going to look at it. We're going to try to drill down deep. And think about what Christ has accomplished for us. But just kind of in a very brief, sort of sweeping, summary way, Jesus, remember, just even according to this very letter, was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He was born a human being, truly human, yet truly God. He was born that way so that He could fulfill the law in the place of human beings. He could fulfill the law in the place of lawbreakers. 
And he was born under the law so that he could bear the penalty that the law requires for breaking the law. So not only did he accomplish that perfect righteousness, he made perfect atonement for his people, all to be received by faith. Because of that, stand firm. That's Paul's exhortation. Because of that, do not submit again to this yoke of slavery under the law. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So, good question to ask. And this is where we're going. What is the freedom for which Christ has set us free? What, is, what does that look like? What kind of freedom are we talking about here? So that's what I am going to attempt to do. Just a few kind of talking points for us about the freedom that we have in Christ in these remaining moments. And this is certainly not comprehensive. These are just a few thoughts. We could, we could preach for years on this. So I'll give them to you in numbers. I think that's fine. I've got four of these for you too. What is this freedom for which Christ has set us free? Number one, it is freedom from fear of condemnation. Freedom from fear of condemnation. Think Romans 8.1, right? Paul has just been describing the wrestling of the Christian in Romans 7. This internal war that goes on. I don't do the things that I want to do and I end up doing the things that I don't want to do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Amen. That's right. And so after he has just described that reality, he tells us in the first verse of Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ by faith, there is therefore no condemnation. That is wonderful news for a sinner because we struggle with this internal war the indwelling sin within us just rears its head and wages war against our spirit. And I trust everybody in this room has felt that battle this week and has felt the costliness and the severity and the hardness of that battle this week. And so how glorious is it that we know that we know that we know that there is now no condemnation for us because of Christ Jesus. We will not be lost finally. We will not be condemned finally. We will not be put to shame. Bank on it. That is great news. And you'll say, oh, but brother, I am a great sinner. You don't know me, man. I'm a great sinner. Yes, and Christ is a greater Savior. We trust in Him. And it is because of Him, not you, it's because of Him, not me, that we can know that we won't be condemned. Because if it depended on you or me at all, there would be no assurance, none, that it would go well for us on the last day. That great weight that we carry around with us, fear and dread of condemnation has been removed. Now often in our experience, we don't, we don't feel that, but that's part of the Christian life, this battle to believe God that that's true. I'm not condemned anymore. I was, and I'm not now. 
Does it sound too good to be true to you? Kind of does to me sometimes. In a Christless universe, it would be too good to be true. But because Jesus lives, it's true. And part of what this means, friends, is that if you sit here today and you, by grace, by the Spirit, have trusted in Christ completely for your standing before God, if you are hoping solely in Him and you trust and rest that He is my righteousness and He has provided atonement for me, I trust Christ. You sit here justified today and you will be finally saved. You are justified right now. You are being sanctified and you most certainly will be glorified on the last day. And it's done. It's over when it comes to your standing before God and there is peace and rest there because of Christ and what He's done. So now when those sinking feelings just chase after you all the time, like, I know that I'm not going to measure up. I know it. I'm not going to measure up. I'm going to be one of those people that God looks at, that Christ looks at and says, depart from me. I never knew you. When those feelings start creeping in or just won't let go, and they're in your mind and in your heart all the time, this is what you combat that with. No if it did depend on me, I would be cast out. But because of Jesus Christ, I will never be turned away. It is in Christ and Christ alone that we hope, and therefore we will not be condemned. So that's the first piece of this freedom, that Christ has set us free for that. He set us free from that fear of condemnation. Number two, Christ has set us free from a troubled conscience. Christ has set us free from a troubled conscience. And so you might be thinking, well, is this not a lot like the first one? It is, but it's different. Think about all the letters in the New Testament. That, you know, they have the greetings at the beginning, and they have the sign-offs, the salutations at the end. What is the most common refrain? Grace and peace, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not accidental, that that's the greeting or the sign-off. It kind of seems arbitrary to us, but it isn't. Grace and peace. Significant. Why? We need grace because we're sinners, and we need peace because we have troubled consciences. We walk around, we're constantly aware of our guilt. The shame that we carry around like this backpack that's just weighted down, we carry it with us everywhere we go. And it's not, it's not illegitimate that we would carry guilt and shame around with us because we're really guilty of breaking God's law. And we have done shameful things. Everyone in this room has. So it's legit that you would feel those things. So then what do I do with that though? What do I do with guilt? And what do I do with shame? Christ has set us free from it. Because Christ has taken our guilt on Himself. He took it. I'm going to talk correctly, more precisely. He took it to the cross. He took our shame. The shame of sin as a state and the shame of sins as action. He took it to the cross. And it's been dealt with. It's paid for. 
So again, when I'm feeling shame and I'm feeling guilt just weighing in on me, it's like, no, I know that my Savior has dealt with that. He has paid for that. And so I need not carry that with me anymore. Gone are the days when we would live life afraid that like, God is going to cast His glance over at me and be disgusted at what He sees. Because He is completely pleased with us because of His Son. Remember, we've been adopted as His children through Christ. Now obviously we can have conversations about grieving God with our disobedience and all these kinds of things, but His posture towards us is always one of a loving Father. We need not fear His gaze. We need not feel the need to cover our guilt and our shame like Adam and Eve did in the garden because Christ has dealt with that. It's good and it's necessary that we would feel remorse, that we would feel conviction about sin. It's necessary that we would be repentant and that we would be sorry and that we wouldn't want to sin anymore Certainly that's true of Christians. And when we sin, we take it to our loving and gracious Father. Who, because He gave His Son for us and because of what Jesus did, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we take our sin to Him. For those of us sitting here this morning trusting in Jesus Christ. We really are new creations in that we really do have a new identity in Christ Jesus. Our identity is not in our shame. It is not in our guilt. It is not in our sins. It is not in Adam anymore. Our identity is in Jesus. And that is how we are looked at by the Father Praise be to His name. There is no room for guilt and shame any longer. Third piece, third thing about this freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Number three, freedom from meritorious living before God. Freedom from meritorious living before God. And by meritorious, I think everybody's with me. You're living in such a way as though you could earn merit before God, and you are like, man, I've got to earn it with God. I've got to work so that I can earn God's favor. Jesus has freed us from that. He has taken this yoke off of our necks. It's not a coincidence, friends, that when Jesus talks about Himself and His ministry, and He says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Friends, a yoke is such a common image for the weight of the law throughout Scripture. Christ, in one sense, in saying that, my yoke is easy, is telling us that He is removing from our necks the yoke of the law and how it crushes us and weighs down on us in all of its holiness because He is the one who has fulfilled it and our hope is in Him. So this yoke of having to earn favor with God is gone. There is nothing meritorious for us to do. There is nothing to contribute to our standing before God. 
to illustrate it imperfectly, but I hope helpfully. It's like this. We, we all at one time were like a child working for his or her parent. We'll just say his dad. And while we're working, we're all the time terrified because we know our dad. We know what he's like. We know his standards. We know the expectation. I'm working. We're working. And we're scared to death of when dad comes home and inspects what I'm doing. It's never going to measure up. It's never going to be good enough. Right? We're filled with dread at the thought of him looking at what we've been working on and know that he will not be pleased. We know that our performance will never merit his approval. That's where we all once lived. But now, now it's different. Now we are children working for our Heavenly Father. And as we work, we are filled with excitement. And we're filled with joy. Because it's not that we think our work is perfect. We know it's not perfect. We know that it's tainted, but we know our Father. We know His disposition. We know that when He comes home, He's going to be genuinely pleased with our sincere effort, as imperfect as it is. We know that we already have His approval. And so we know that He is going to be kind and gracious with us as we work for Him. And so when we work, not only do we have joy, not only do we have excitement, but our hearts are at rest and our minds are at peace because we're not afraid of the fact that God, our Father, is going to come and look at it and just say, it's ridiculous. We know Him. He's a good Father. He's gracious to His children. And so we are free in Christ from ever feeling like or thinking that we need to earn it with God. Fourth, and lastly, what does this freedom mean? The freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Number four, freedom unto joyful obedience. Freedom unto joyful obedience. So this is the furthest thing, this kind of freedom. It's the furthest thing from freedom unto sin. No. It's freedom unto joyful righteousness. It is freedom unto joyful obedience. So now our posture, kind of flowing out of the last thought, now that we're working and we're joyful, and now that we're working and we're excited and we're not afraid because we know God, we now have this posture of like, man, I, I get to do this. Like, this is such a blessing and an opportunity for me to get to take part in what God is doing in His world. There are so many other things that I could be doing on a Sunday morning or whatever day of the week it is that I find myself laboring. I pray it's every day in one sense. Like, we're laboring all the time to build the kingdom of God, right? And we are struck by, like, I could be doing so many other things. I could be doing so many other things that are, eternally speaking, absolutely worthless. But here I am, because of the grace of God in Christ, doing something that matters eternally. That's a kindness of God. And so we have the opportunity to work by the power of God, in one sense, alongside Him in building His kingdom. We're not motivated by dread, but by delight. 
We don't look at God, as we've talked about before, as a judge, but as a loving Father. We want to honor God with our lives, not to earn anything, but we want to honor God with our lives to make Him look awesome. We want to honor Him with our lives because we're grateful. We want to honor Him with our lives because we are so moved by what He has done for us in Christ that we then are like, hey, I'm going to give my life away in service to this God who has done this for me through His Son. I want to spread this God's fame because He deserves it. I want to make my Father look awesome and I want to make Jesus look awesome to the world. And so there will be times, friends, certainly in the Christian life, when believers lose their senses. The temporary loss of like the spiritual compass and just things are going crazy and we look at it, it's like, what in the world is going on here? Or you are thinking, I, I just don't know what's going on in my life. I feel like I've become disoriented. And in times like that, we do need to be severely warned often. We've talked about this. I mean, even in this sermon series, we've talked about the place of warning in the Christian life. When people lose their senses, they need to be shaken. When people are walking around in a stupor, they need to be awakened. And, that being said, at the same time, this kind of freedom from meritorious living and this kind of freedom unto joyful obedience, all empowered by the Spirit of God, just very personally for me as your pastor, this is why my posture in general, in an ongoing way, will never be to scare you into holiness. I don't want my posture to be generally speaking, to scare you into holiness, to erode your assurance in order to motivate you to be holy, to erode your assurance in order to motivate you to participate in church life. But rather, taking my cue from Scripture, I would rather, instead of scaring you, I would rather stir you. I would rather stir you up to love and good works by holding out Christ to you And by holding out the amazing love and grace of God to you. Let's herald Jesus. Let's herald the grace and the love of God. And let that motivate holiness and church life. That's the goal. That's the posture that I pray that I have. And that all of the pastors of this church would have. The general MO for the believer is to freely and joyfully strive for holiness. That is a description of the Christian life. To freely and joyfully strive for holiness. To pursue holiness while being completely assured of our standing before God because of Christ. To strive for holiness because of God's love for us in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote something to this effect elsewhere. What I'm saying to you in the third chapter of his letter to the Philippians. And this is a good concluding thought for us even today. So an exhortation from me to you is let's forsake our own righteousness 
for the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. Let's do that. Let's get rid of this nonsense of our own righteousness. There's no need to parade our own righteousness around when what we are championing and heralding is the righteousness of another. And his name is Jesus. And knowing that Jesus has made us his own, let's press on. Let's strive for holiness. Let's strive for the glory of God. Let's strive for the bodily resurrection. Let's strive toward the new heavens and the new earth because Jesus has made us His own. Let's press on toward that day when we will be able to live forever in perfect holiness, free from sin, with God. Let's press on to that day when we will see Christ as He is. Let's walk together. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do come to You now as Your Word has been preached. And we're aware that, if possible, more prayer is needed now that the sermon is over than before it began. We pray that You would apply the Word to our hearts. We pray that You would drive Your truth deep into our hearts and minds that we might be changed by it. We pray that we would be filled with genuine joy this morning in thinking about what Jesus has done for us. We pray that we would be thrilled and that our hearts would sing at thinking about the freedom that we have in Christ. And we pray, God, by Your Spirit that we would be a body of believers who lock arms together, who strive for holiness, and who do so in an environment of compassion and accountability. We pray, God, that You would get glory for Yourself through CBC. We pray that this church would be known not for any of us, not for anything earthly. We pray that we would be known as a church that heralds the Lord Jesus and His righteousness. Continue to change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.